Uh, good morning, Conduit. Uh, my name is Cameron. I'm one of the pastors here. And if this is your first time here, or if this is your, you know, 600th time here, um, either way, uh, we, 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 try, we try to say the same thing just about every week, and that is welcome home. Because it's our desire that this would be a place that you feel... Um, that you feel at home at, and that you feel you feel welcome at, and I don't know about you, but like um, when I when I when I think about what it's like or how I feel about welcoming someone into my home, like the home that my wife and I have built, right? It kind of changes the way that I think about my relationship with that person and why I'm what I'm there to do, uh, how I'm there to serve them. Um, but also just the general friendship or community that we have in that moment. And we hope and pray uh, that when you're here that you feel, you feel at home and you are at home. That's our, that's our desire, that's our goal, um, that's our prayer for you. Um, so we're starting a new sermon series today. Uh, sermon, uh, the, the series name, uh, we previewed this last week. Uh, and I got some people that looked at me with a uh, cross-eyed, and that's okay. Uh, I get it. Um, uh, but we titled this series "Naked and Unafraid." Now I don't know if you have seen the um, if you've seen the TV show, the reality show "Naked and, Naked and Afraid," but the premise behind it is that uh, it's a reality show. I would say um, sort of like in the spirit of the in the spirit of Survivor, you know, kind of like the oldest rea- reality show that there is. Um, but with the one caveat, um, and this is, I don't even know what to say about it, but with the one caveat that all of the contestants are naked, right? And, um, you know, of course, everything is pixelated and blurred out, and so not really, not really sure of the overall, like, purpose of the show, other than to be fairly provocative to really run the line of, and not even really run the line of, of completely step over the line of what really is kind of appropriate, right? But I think one of the, one of the, draws, one of the draws of the show is that um, you, see, you, see all, you see a bunch of people who at least on the surface have uh, kind of let down all of their sensibilities and who have been kind of made themselves 100% vulnerable. I don't know how you get more vulnerable than that, right? Being on a reality show that's broadcast all over the world and to be completely naked. And um, although I, that's, that's the last time that I intend to talk about that show <laughs> um, ever in all of my life, um, I wanted to try and help us make some kind of connection this morning and over the next few weeks, because um, as we look at, we're going to look at the the uh, kind of the creation account this morning, Genesis chapter two, Genesis chapter three, um, and we'll see some we'll see some uh, some words and some phrases and some way that the writer of Genesis talked about the attitude and the demeanor and kind of the position of Adam and Eve as it pertains to being naked and without shame. 
And um, because what we, what we want to talk about the next few weeks is we want to talk about this idea uh, or the idea of uh, the word, um, the feeling, the pervasiveness of personal shame. Pastor Luke and I have talked a lot about uh, shame um, lately in our you know personal conversations. We recorded a podcast about it this past week that will be out in a few weeks and talking talking about the spiritual implications of shame, talking about like okay what is a what is even a good definition of a good definition of shame because you have words that are similar to shame that maybe evoke um, similar feelings or similar ideas um, or similar responses, but that are not necessarily uh, the same thing. And shame is kind of a shame is kind of a tricky word to define because nowhere nowhere in Scripture does it come right out and say, "Well, shame is this." And we have maybe more modern understandings and definitions of it, and we have psychological definitions and understandings of it. But um, it is it is my opinion that shame is much more uh, pervasive and deeply rooted and, um, and insidious in our souls and in our spiritual lives than maybe any of us have ever really come um, to really realize or imagine. Because shame can be uh, both something that we uh, feel as an emotion, Right? We say things like, I was, so, I was so ashamed in that moment. And usually what we mean is that there was some sense of like embarrassment about what we did or how we were viewed or what was exposed about our lives. And that starts to get to the root of what shame is. But then there's this um, beyond just what we feel when we're experiencing a moment of shame is what shame, uh, what shame uh, I would say, motivates us or leads us to do. And how the presence of shame um, actually uh, takes us in a direction away from the place where shame can find its healing. Where, where pain can find its healing. And so, um, I want to be clear. I want to be clear about something. We're, um, you know, there have been volumes and volumes and volumes of books written on this, both from a theological and a psychological perspective. I'm not a psychologist, right? Um, and so, I I don't I don't intend to to um, speak um, with any authority on any on any aspect of that. What I want to do over the next few weeks will be in the series for three weeks, I think. Um, is see today where shame began. Maybe have a little bit of a, an understanding of what shame at its root and at its core does to us as people. Right? Um, and, then, and then give us a picture or show a picture of how even from the very beginning of time, um, God our Heavenly Father was foreshadowing or projecting the way in which he would cover and eliminate our shame through the cross of Jesus Christ. 
where, where shame would be defeated once and for all and would, would, would free us to enter back into full and vulnerable relationship with Him and with others. Because without like blowing up my whole sermon and giving you the main point at the beginning, I'm kind of going to give you the main point at the beginning, right? Which is this. Is that the thing that shame does, right? Is it, is it takes us from the people that we were created to be in intimate connection and relationship with our Heavenly Father and with the people around us, right? And it makes us run and hide out of fear that if we are seen for who we truly are, we will be left alone and we will be abandoned. That if the person sitting next to me could see into my soul that there is no way that they would stay with me. They would leave, that they would no way that they, they would not see me as enough, that I would not be enough for them, and that I would run and hide. And oftentimes, uh, or not oftentimes, we have shame leads us to believe that both about in relationship to our Heavenly Father, but also in relationship to each other. Right? That we want to run and hide from the people that are, are around us, not expressing any vulnerability at all. Shame leads us into that place. And that we run and hide from our Heavenly Father, right? not expressing any vulnerability to Him at all, right? and, and, and trying to run out of relationship with Him. Okay. If you open up your Bible to this is a really easy one, okay? It's not like one you gotta like look in your table of contents for, right? It's not like Joel or Amos. Most people are like, is Joel even a book in the Bible? Yes, Joel is a book in the Bible. You don't gotta find it this morning. What you gotta find is Genesis chapter two. So Genesis is the very first book in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible this morning, there should be one um, somewhere around in the seats for you. And if, um, if there's not one there, or you don't have a personal copy of the Bible, I want to I get you one, and you can have it, okay? Or if you found one in the seats this morning, and you don't have your own personal copy, but you want one, uh, go ahead and take that one home with you. It's yours now, okay? Write your name in it, mark it up. Um, so most people, even even from the perspective of like a, um, even from the perspective of kind of like a, a cultural understanding, is that even if you don't have a whole lot of exposure to the Bible, you you probably have some exposure even to the wording of the creation account, right? Genesis chapter one. Um, in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth, right? And the earth was without shape or void and darkness was resting or over, over the face of the deep, right? And the Spirit of God moved upon the waters and God spoke and said, let there be light. And there was light. And, and then land and sea and birds and um, sky and waters and earth, right? And, 
and, and it was good, 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 and it was good. And you get this picture that God is like creating by the power of the, just the, the breath, his own breath, where he's just like breathing all that there is into existence, this wonderful creative act. And then and it, it was like he was doing it super quick even, right? Like just speaking things into existence. Speak, 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 speak. No effort, almost as if it was like a second thought to him. And then it seems like the, all of the breaks got stomped on in the, in the creation account. And it comes to chapter 2, and all everything slows down. And now God is not creating with the words of his mouth. Now God is creating, we get this picture of, of one who kneels down next to the dirt and, and forms the shape of a man, Right? Like he's sculpting it with intentionality. He's sculpting it with purpose. He's taking his time. And then it says, and then he breathed his breath into him. Then God said, or God, or where is that? God created man in his own image. And he breathed his breath into him. Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the, and the man became a living being. It's like everything else was done with words and without really much intentionality, it seems, but then the writer slows everything down and it says God formed the man with his own hands and then breathed into him the very breath of his own life. And so at the kind of the apex of his creation was this intentional formation of humanity by which God breathed and put his own spirit, his own breath, his own life into it. And of course, that was Adam and then Eve um, was created out of the rib of Adam, right? As a, as a helper, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And then we get down into the last verse of Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, and we see this very peculiar, uh, this very peculiar verse. It says, The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, we have God creating in perfection, right? We have God creating with extensive joy. We have God creating with intentionality and breathing his life and breathing his spirit into someone. And then he comes, the writer comes to this last verse in Genesis 2.25 and he uses this really interesting choice of words. And they were naked together and they felt no shame. Now, I come to a text like this and I ask myself the question, well, why, why these words? And in particular, why shame? Why was it that why was it that, that it was shame that they didn't feel? That is a, if I were writing this or if I was trying to like express what was happening here, I, I might have written a different type of word other than shame. 
I might have written something like, I don't know, they felt no disappointment. They were, they were naked and they, they, had, they had no need of anything. That they were naked and they had no anxiety. That they were naked and they had no stress. That they were naked and they had no sadness at all. But, but the word that is used to describe the inner disposition of Adam and Eve in the perfection of the creation that they were experiencing in that moment is that they experienced no shame. And I wonder if the writer of Genesis here, knowing what's going on here in the future and getting ready to continue to tell the story, was kind of like, for the reader, setting up this like underhand pitch. Right? When the underhand pitch was going to come, that reader was just going to, like the story was just going to like knock it totally out of the park. Because why else would you use such a word when it seems so out of place for human experience. Because what does come next is a monumental shift in their attitudes, in their demeanors, and their actions. They felt no shame was not an experience that they had for very long, if you follow the text. So let's continue. Genesis chapter 3. Okay? Genesis chapter 3 starts off not with talking about the man and the woman, but now introduces um, someone or something else. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent, now the serpent, was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now the word crafty here, um, is not meant to talk about your, your aunt who likes to do crafts with her friends um, at Bridge Club, right? right? We're not talking pipe cleaners and doilies and beads type of crafty. Okay? It's not the type of crafty we're talking about. We're talking about this um, evil, insidious, um, darkly shrewd, covertly destructive, type of craftiness. Like, flying under the radar of what is obviously doing in order to cause chaos, in order to cause destruction, in order to cause pain. And you can see very clearly in the things that the serpent does and the things that the serpent says over the next few um, moments that there was never a moment in that there was never a moment in what the serpent said where it was obvious that he was trying to create uh, pain. That he was trying to stir up chaos. That he was trying to lead Adam and Eve away. He makes little assumptions here. And he maybe leverages an implication there. And he leads them down a path by asking some really tricky questions here. But it's never obviously like, well, God's lying to you and you shouldn't do that. In fact, do this other thing over here. Um, because most people, um, most people see right through that. So the indication that the serpent was crafty was, 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 was meant to like, indicate that it was covert. 
that it was insidious, that it was shrewd, but in a dark, dark manner. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now what is clear here is that um, the one of the serpents or the enemy, right? We, we, we um, almost in, in Scripture and in the Scripture account, like Satan is Satan, the enemy of our soul, right? The enemy of God, the enemy of humanity is almost always personified in some certain way. And in this part of the story, he's personified in the appearance of a serpent, right? Um, but it's clear here that his goal is to begin to sow disbelief begin to sow disbelief into the relationship between Adam and Eve and God. He wants to begin to sow some like a, a line of questioning that, that calls into question what God actually said and not just what God actually said, but why in the world God would actually say and do the things that he would say. The serpent's point or the serpent's motivation as it continues to be even up to this very day, right, is not to ask honest questions of us or of God in order that we would find the real truth. The serpent's purpose always and forever was to destruct the relationship that Adam and Eve had with their Creator, the Heavenly Father. Wanted to sow disbelief in such a covert and darkly insidious way that it was necessary or it was a a natural consequence that destruction or division in the relationship between us as created beings and God as our Heavenly Father would, would fester, would grow, would take root, and would be separated. Did God really say, what was he doing, right? He was sowing doubt about the truthfulness of what God said, about the reality of what God said. And then in verse, he goes on and says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the the wild animals that God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You'll see already, right? You'll see already that, some, that, that, that something has gone wrong, right? Because according to, according to the text in Genesis chapter 2, that's not the totality of or the fullness of what God said at all, right? That God actually said something different. Right, but in verse, uh, in verse four, it goes on. The serpent comes back into the conversation and says this. He says, "You will not surely die." The serpent says, "For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and knowing evil." We have to take a moment here. I think you'll understand how shame functions 
and what shame does and how, and how we get led from a place of intimate connection with God to being broken, to wanting to hide in our sin, and to running away from God, how this happens. And this is kind of like the first moment where we see what begins to happen, uh, what, be, what, we, what begins to happen in those moments. Imagine, if you will for me, the implications of what the serpent says to the woman. Um, he speaks on behalf of or makes implications about what God must be thinking or must really think or, or really want based on, right, based on what he said or didn't say, right? So God, uh, God said, leave the tree alone. Don't eat, a, eat of its fruit. The serpent was like, well, are you sure you don't want to eat of that fruit? And Eve was like, well, we were told not to eat of the fruit. And then, God, and then the serpent was like, well, the real reason that God doesn't want you to eat of the fruit is because if you eat of that fruit, you'll be just like him. You're going to be like him. What is the implication of what that says, of what he says? Well, the implication is that God does not want us to be like him. That, that, God, that God, the Father, that the one who created you um, does not want you to be too awfully connected to him. And in fact, not only does he not want you to be too connected to him, you're, you're not actually as important to him as you've been made to believe that you are or think that you are. You're actually, you're actually less than you were originally made to think that you are. I mean, just look, why wouldn't he want you to eat of the fruit? You're obviously less than you've been made to think. Not, not, only, not only are you less than maybe you have thought you were in the past, you're, you're really not enough. You're not enough. You're not important to Him. You are less than you think that you are. Now, I think without, um, sometimes I ask you to raise your hands or answer this question. Sometimes I actually want you to raise your hands, and other times I don't actually want you to raise your hands. So I'm going to say, raise your hand or answer this question, but I don't actually want you to in this moment, all right? Does that make sense? I just don't know how else to phrase the question. Other than to say, how many of you, how many of us have at moments in our lives, at times in our lives, in certain situations in our lives, seen this internal spiritual voice or pattern kind of turn itself, turn the gears in our own minds? God doesn't actually want to be close to you. 
he doesn't actually want to, you to be close to him. Because just, just look at your life. And, and look at yourself. And look at your thoughts. And, and look at your actions, right? And look at the things that you've done. And look at the things that you, look at the things that you haven't done. And look at the places that you've been. And look at the places where you're going, like... You're definitely, you're definitely not measuring up. And you are definitely not enough. You're, you failed. And you're going to keep failing. And because you failed, and because you're going to keep failing, that means that you are a failure. I don't know about you, and I don't want you to answer the question here, but I would, I would raise my hand and say, there's many times. Sometimes on a daily basis where, where cycles like this and thoughts like this turn over and 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 turn over. And this is part of the... This is why, this is why shame becomes so insidious is because it doesn't it separates itself not from just an emotion that we feel but it's something that now drives us into an identity that God never meant for us to have because what happens from these implications that the serpent makes to Eve and that she at least in some ways buys hook line and sinker is that it's now she needs to operate independently from God. You're not important to Him. You're less than you think. You're not enough. You must go about it alone. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Listen, an aside here. We often get this classic picture in our mind of, well, Eve was deceived and then she took what she had, and then she went to her husband Adam, and, and then she deceived Adam. Well, the, the scripture is really clear that they were both there together, right? And that Adam, in whatever form of like leadership or non leadership or, 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 um, or like vulnerability or non vulnerability, failed to speak up in this moment. And they were both deceived together. But what strikes me is this. We get this picture from the creation account, right? That, that creation is full of joy and full of perfection and that there is this tremendous like connection that Adam and Eve have with the creation as a whole and with God as their heavenly Father and the Creator, right? That there's like, there's never any sense 
that there's any break in the relationship or any gap in the relationship at all. It's just, it's, it's communicated to us as this is perfect. It's as perfect as it possibly could be. And so now we get to this moment here and what would, what would, what would um, motivate or what would lead Eve to saying, okay, yes, I will eat of the fruit. And here's what I would say, all right? I think here's, here's something that we should recognize, here's something that we should be aware of, is this. The serpent, right, the craftiness of the enemy, the serpent invited the woman to analyze God's intention from a distance rather than to talk to him to sort out the implications that were bubbling up within her own mind, within her own soul. The serpent led Eve to a place of destruction of the intimate relationship that she had with God by saying, hey look, I know that you've been walking with God in the garden, you've been in super intimate connection with Him, you know, like the relationship is as perfect as it possibly could be, but there's no real need to go back to God and actually ask Him in this moment of temptation or in this moment of questioning or in this moment of doubt whether or not the, the, the fruit should be eaten or the fruit could be eaten. Why don't you just stand far away from God in this moment and why don't you analyze and maybe judge and come to your own conclusions about the implications of the things that He has said, right? The serpent leveraged the ability to get Eve as far away from God as possible and then discouraged any form of her running to him for wisdom, for leadership, for guidance, for clarity, and instead basically said, hey Eve, don't worry. You can figure this out by yourself. You can make the decision yourself. You can do this yourself. You can rely on your own wisdom. You can rely on your own intellect. You can judge and analyze the motivations and the implications behind the things that God has said um, surrounding the tree, surrounding the fruit. They stopped talking to God and they started thinking about God. And in the process, their identity as a people connected in deep, intimate relationship with Him was shattered and led them into an action of sinful independence. The beauty that existed in Genesis 2.25 where they were naked and they felt no shame now led them to this place of not no longer being in intimate connection with God, but running and hiding in a fearful sort of dependence now from Him. This is what shame does. Shame rewrites our understanding of who we really and truly are. 
want you to hear this again. Adam and Eve stopped talking to God and started thinking, just merely thinking about Him. And in the process, their identity as a people who were connected by God in deep and intimate relationship was shattered and led them into a place of sinful independence from their Creator. And look what happened after that. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Verse 7 in Genesis chapter 3, Then the eyes of both of them were opened. Right? The eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. This is like the, the juxtaposition the like the antithetical parallelism to Genesis chapter 2 verse 25 where they were naked and felt no shame but now in an act where they where they sought their independence from intimate relationship with God to go out and do their own thing and make their own decisions and break that relationship off with him now what they once experienced as no shame their eyes were opened and all they saw was the embarrassment that comes from being naked in front of someone that like you used to have maybe intimate like relationship with now but like the vulnerability of intimate relationship now was destroyed said they were naked lost my place they realized their eyes were opened and they realized that they were naked and so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Verse 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as He was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What happens when we feel shame? You know, listen, you know that you have been living in shame. That you have been living under the burden and weight of an identity that God has not given to you. When you are actively running from God. In the midst of your sin, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your darkness, where you are running and hiding from God. In verse 9, the writer says this, but, God, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Where are you? Now, think, let's think in implication here. Is God geographically challenged? Did God somehow get turned around in the garden some way? Like, oh, I meant to turn left at the oak tree, but I turned right instead, and I kind of lost track of where I was, right? It's not that God couldn't find them physically. It's that God sensed in that moment that they were running from Him emotionally. That they were running from Him spiritually. That, that they were... 
that they had covered themselves and their shame, that they were hiding in the proverbial bushes because, because now God is going to smite us, almighty smiter. We must hide. We must, we, we must, we must like conceal ourselves from him because now all of the things that the serpent said, God doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to be close to him. You are less than anything. You are not enough. Even in the face of God, we're going to experience all of this right now. Even in that moment, we have done wrong. We need to hide. The man answered, well, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. Verse 11, God asked, who told you that you were naked? Listen, what is, God, what is, the, like, what is the, the depth of the question that God answers or asks Adam and Eve in this moment? It's not like a, hey, who gave you the information that you don't have any clothes on? Right? Remember, it wasn't just about, it's not just about their physical nakedness. It's about the identity that they had as 100% vulnerable, comfortable, without shame, with one another, and in relationship to God. They had never even, they had never even, um, it had never even factored into their mind that they were naked because because the depth of vulnerability and connectedness in the relationship that they had with God, right, was the only thing that mattered. But now that that intimacy, that vulnerability was broken, their nakedness came on full display, and they adopted an identity that God never gave them, right? And so now God's asking the question, not who told you that you were naked, but he really is saying, who told you that you were something different than the identity that I gave you as beloved children of mine? Why are you hiding? What changed? What's going on? Who told you that you were naked? Now this is a... the. <laughs> The back and forth here is a, um, is a classic example of sinful human nature when we feel that we are, when we feel under the weight of shame. We got to get that shame off of us as quick as we can, right? We're going to leave, we got to leave that behind. Like, shame off you, right? Not shame on you, shame off me, right? Get it off, get it off, get, get it away from me. Um, who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the tree that I told you to not eat of? Uh, the man said, uh, well, uh, the woman, um, not me, the woman that you put here with me. The woman that you put here with me, she ate of it, and then she gave it to me. Right, what's the what's the implication, right? It's not my responsibility. I didn't do anything wrong. Like it's someone else's fault. The reason that like what happened is someone else's fault. It's not my fault. It's not my responsibility. 
right? Someone else. In fact, God, this is kind of your fault because you put her, her, you put her here with me. So I'll go ahead and ask her some questions. And you can just kind of see this playing out. And God's like, well, Eve? Adam says this, what do you think? And what does Eve say? I was the serpent. The serpent deceived me and I ate. There was this, there was this, there's just this passing of responsibility down the line to the next person, right? Trying to escape from the sense of personal responsibility, trying to escape from this identity as ones that have chosen a different path other than God. There's much more that we could say on this topic, but what I, what I want us to do is I want us to come to this moment here in Genesis chapter 3, um, verse 21. The passages in between, between 14 and 21, you know, God, God ultimately levels the curse upon creation, right? That the, that the, that the breaking of intimate relationship creates a breaking in relationship between the creation and him as heavenly father, and then it's, it, it sits now under a, it sits now under a curse. The serpent sits under a curse. And you would, you would seem like, okay, all of these things are cursed. Serpent, you are cursed. Ground, you are cursed. Man, you are cursed with toil. Women, you are cursed with child, with pain and childbearing. Curse, 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 curse. And you can kind of see it all playing out. God, God, God leveling the punishment of their sin. And then he turns to them, right? And they're expecting in this moment, like, okay, here it comes. Here it comes. And what does God do? Now, the classic like children's Bible, picture Bible, is this. So he looks over, and there's a, a ram with its horns, right, caught in a thicket. Kind of like the, the Abraham story, Abram and Isaac, right? And he, and he walks over, and he grabs it, and he sacrifices it, and he takes the skin off of it, and then he makes clothes of it. But we see very simply here, um, we see it in a, in a much more simple way, right? The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. I don't want you to miss this, okay? Don't want you to miss this. God does not want you to believe to believe the craftiness of the enemy that leads you down a path of saying that you are less than him, that he doesn't want to be have relationship with you, that you are not enough. That 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 God does not want you to that God does not want you to adopt an identity of shame and an identity of brokenness and an identity of condemnation that leads you to a place where you feel like your only option 
in your relationship with God is to run and hide from him. Oh my gosh, look at how sinful I am. Look at how dirty I am. Look at how broken I am. Look at how dark my life is. Look at the decisions that I've, I've made. Look at the relationships that I've had. Look at the places that I've gone. Look at the things that I have done. Look at the things that I haven't done. I must run and hide from God because when he finally catches up to me and he finally finds me, I'm really going to be in for it. And what the, what the Word of God unequivocally says is that even as you hide in shame because of your sin, that God consistently pursues you at every single turn. Adam and Eve didn't come looking for God. God came looking for them in the midst of their sin, in the midst of their hiding, in the midst of their brokenness, and when he found them, he did not level this eternal punishment that come crashing down on him, but he took the very thing that signified their shame in that moment, their nakedness, and he made provision to cover over top of it. It's like he took, it's like he, Adam, he's like, he took this and he's like covering up Adam and Eve. Like you feel shame because of your nakedness? You feel separation from me? You feel disconnected from me? Let me, let me make sure that you don't feel that. Let me make sure that you know that any bit of shame, any bit of pain, any bit of desire that you would have to run and hide from me in my presence, let me make provision now to cover up all of that embarrassment, to cover up all of that shame. I will take care of it. I, will, I do not want that to be your identity. That's not who I created you to be. That's not who you will be in the future. So he says he took skin and made clothes for them. Right? Well, the implication there is that a sacrifice of some type of animal was made, right? He didn't have just like a, he didn't go to his closet and get some skin. That would be creepy, right? <laughs> that there, some skin needed to be provided for. A sacrifice needed to be made. A sacrifice needed to be made in order to cover the shame that was caused by sin. Does that sound familiar to anyone? That God, even in these first moments of creation, was projecting and foreshadowing that for all time, that God would make the sacrifice, that God would make the way, that God would provide the way for our sin and our shame to be covered so that we wouldn't have to run away from Him, that we could live with him in the midst of vulnerable, connected, close and intimate relationship with one another under the identity that he has given us, not that we have assumed on our own. That God wants to know that you cannot outrun him. He's coming to find you in the midst of the garden. He's coming to find you. You... You try to hide. Some of you, here, some of you are here this morning and you've been trying to hide for months. You've been trying to hide for years. You've been running away because you don't feel worthy. You don't feel like you deserve it. You don't feel like God should love you. 
You don't feel like God should accept you. You think all of the things that I have done, all of the places that I have gone, all of the things that I think, yeah, I, I'm, that's just who I am. That's how I, that I, I have gotten all that I have deserved. And what God says is not shame on you. God says, no, get, let, me, let me take an opportunity to take the shame off of you. And cover, cover your shame with the grace of my son Jesus. Next week we're going to look or we're going to talk a little bit about how how Jesus himself when he encountered people who were living under an identity of like um, brokenness who were had been running from God who had been trying to who had been who have been trying to hide from him because they were shamed of what they've done or hadn't done or said or didn't say or been with or hadn't been with. That it was that all the way through human history, God in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 right here, but Jesus into the New Testament was constantly pursuing and reaching to people trying to come back into that intimate relationship and connection that he had with him right from the very beginning. I think there's one main point. Uh, let's have the band come back up. We're going we're gonna to take communion here in just a few minutes. Really, there. If there's one one main point in all of this that I want to make sure that you hear or understand, because this will this will guide some of our work into the next few weeks as well. It's this: is that in the midst of this tension between like the craftiness of the serpent and the speaking of the Lord into Adam and Eve's life, there was this is that Adam and Eve at some point stopped talking to God and living in relationship with Him and being open and vulnerable and emotionally naked before Him. And started relying on their own wisdom. They stopped talking to God because of their... Maybe because of their fear of who they were or what would happen. They stopped talking to God and they started just thinking about Him. And a lot of the times they think the absolutely wrong things about Him. And in the process of that, their identity as people who were intimately connected to Him in deep relationship was shattered and led to a sinful independence. And the reason that I want to the reason that I want uh, to focus on that a little bit as in the end there is because we need to at some point, and we will in the next few weeks, talk about okay. I I am under a lot of sh- I I do experience a lot of shame, and I do feel like I need to run from God and hide and I don't feel like he wants anything to do with me and I 
and like the gap in our relationship and like like disconnected from God. Like I I feel like that's that needs to happen because look at me and look at who I am. Um, that the the antidote. I know this is going to sound really insightful and crazy, right? The antidote to running from God is running to Him. And that requires an incredible amount of vulnerability and courage. But when we are, when we when we open ourselves to be vulnerable before the Lord, to say, Lord, this is who I am. This is what I've done. Right? I confess my sin. You see me truly for who, who I am. I'm no longer going to run from You. Lord, would you, would you show Yourself to me? Would you, would you change me? Would You redeem me? The shame... And the, and the identity that we have carried with us, maybe our whole life begins to, begins to wash over us. Because remember, the, the thing that happened in that moment is that relationship was severed. And what, what running to God does is it opens us back up to that relationship being restored. We're renewed and redeemed. We talked a little bit about the foreshadowing of the gospel that we see in Genesis. And the ways that we see, or the way that we saw, that even at the, even at the beginning, from the very beginning of the presence of sin, of our sinful independence from God, that God, that God pursued us and pursued, and pursued a, a way to cover over our shame, to cover over our sin, and that He does this on His initiative, not our own. That God, that God, that God went first. That God made the sacrifice. That God, that God stepped forward while we were hiding in the bushes in fear of what he might say or what he might do. We're, we're hiding in shame and God is pursuing us in love. Saying, come out. That is not who you are. That is not who I've created you to be. That is not what I want from you. Allow me in the depth of my love to cover over your shame. I will make a way I will make provision. I will make the path. The path for you. The path for me. The path for all of humanity was the death of Jesus on the cross. The the eternal sacrifice that, that that, that made a pathway for the sufficient and full forgiveness of your sins. On the last night of his life, Jesus met with his disciples in an upper room and he took a loaf of bread. And he gave thanks to his heavenly Father for that bread and then he broke the bread. 
And then he gave the bread to his disciples. He said, take and eat of this bread, all of you. This is my body, which has been broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then likewise, Jesus took a cup. And he gave thanks to his heavenly Father for the cup. And then he gave the cup to his disciples and said, take and drink from this, all of you. This is my blood, which has been poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we, we come to the table this morning reflecting on, reflecting on the words of Jesus to his disciples, but also reflecting on what the words were actually symbolizing and what the words were actually communicating and what the, what the bread communicated, and what the cup communicated. Jesus was offering in himself, in the brokenness of his body, and in the shedding of his blood, um, a gift and a provision for the forgiveness of sins that we could not provide for ourselves. Jesus was going before we could go. Jesus was moving before we could move. In the midst of our hiding in sin, Jesus pursued us and is offering himself this morning to you and to us by faith that your sins may be forgiven through him. We come together around a table and we do the same thing that the disciples did because it helps us to remember and to recall the thing that Jesus did. It helps us to celebrate together the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. It gives us an opportunity now and in this moment to respond to the invitation that Jesus gives of himself. Jesus gives you an invitation this morning. He says, stop hiding in your sin. Stop running away from the Lord. Stop, stop wearing the mantle of shame that you feel must be your identity. I give you something new, Jesus says. I give you myself. I give you my broken body. I give you my shed blood. And through faith in me, your sins are perfectly and fully forgiven. Come and receive that gift. And so, in the celebration of communion, we proclaim the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ. You do not need to be a member of Conduit. You do not need to be a member of this church or any church to come and take communion with us. We believe that the offer of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins is open to as many who would come and receive you do not need to have a certain level of like theological education or acumen. Right? There is no test that you need to take. There is no class that you need to go through. Right? Jesus offers himself to all who would receive him by faith. And as we proclaim and celebrate the offering of Jesus this morning... That leads me to say and believe as a pastor that, hey, anyone who would come to receive can receive Jesus. 
anyone that would come and would like the gospel for them and in them this morning can come and receive. Um, as always, we have uh, on both sides of me here are some prayer kneelers. If you um, would like to pray or kneel and pray um, after you're done taking your commun- or d- taking communion or before, you're more than welcome to stay up here uh, for as long as you would like. Um, we, uh, we take communion here by uh, a method called intinction, which means you're going to come up, th- you can come up to the center aisle, you're going to tear off a piece of the bread Pastor Luke and I will be holding, you can dip it in the cup, and you can take communion at that time. You can return to uh, your seats through the outside aisle if you want, right? There is no pressure to come forward to receive. Um, if you don't want to, you don't have to, but I want you to know that God makes invitation for you to come and experience the forgiveness of Jesus Christ this day and every day. That you don't have to run, that you don't have to hide, that he is pursuing you and wants you to know him. So we have Pastor Luke come up and assist me. Serve him first. Luke, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ broken and shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Cameron, the body and the blood of Jesus broken and shed for you. Amen. Lord, your way is so much better. When our way leads us to run and hide, Lord, out of fear that you want nothing to do with us. Because we are carrying shame because of the decisions that we have made. Lord, you come pursuing and running after us. Lord, we run and hide in fear and you chase and pursue in love. Lord, your way is better. Your way is better. Lord, help us to walk out of our hiding place, to come out and to stand before you in the vulnerabilities and the nakedness of the shame that we may be carrying, Lord, so that you can show us that in Jesus, you have covered our shame. You have put to death our shame. And that relationship with you in all of the ways that's always meant to be is possible and is restored. Lord, your way is better. Let us walk in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Conduit, you are loved. Have a great, great week.